1: Did I say that Belgium team name correct, Liesa? Let me just check the pronunciation, which I did about a second ago, and I've forgotten already. Liesa. No, I said it wrong. Liesa.
2: It's
1: annoying. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show.
0: After that run of three very tough away games, it's been quite nice to not have a City match to get stressed over this weekend, but that does mean we are now ready for the return to domestic action. It's Burnley at the Etihad on Saturday, followed by Bruges in Belgium on Tuesday, and both of those ties will be getting a good going over with a fine-tooth comb on this week's Blue Moon podcast. Also on today's show, Sam Roscoe is hearing from fans who have been to a couple of City's previous trips to Belgium. Can you believe it's 18 years since a competitive fixture there? And Howard Hockin is talking about football's morals with ownership. After some fairly big news on that topic last week, I'm David Mooney, and for this week's show, I'm joined by City fan Harry Stokes. Hi, David. And the Manchester City fan brands editor at Reach, Dom Farrell. Hi there, David, you're right. Not too bad, thanks. Harry, are you well? Yeah, I'm good, yeah good to uh good to get you back on the show. Um let's start with uh City's game against Burnley at the Etihad this weekend. Uh, Harry, I just want to start with a look at the at the Premier League picture because Guardiola made a big thing um in in the in the build up to that Liverpool game that he doesn't really look at the table right now. Um but you look at the table, the top 3 City, Liverpool, Chelsea. That's that's going to be the top 3 at the end of the season, isn't it?
3: I would imagine so. I mean, United are also uh only 2 points off the off the top as well, I think, if I remember rightly. So, in theory, it could be a top four, but I think realistically, they're going to fall off. I mean, I, f- I feel optimistic about the league, but um, equally, Chelsea and Liverpool obviously are very strong contenders again this season. I was frustrated, as I think a lot of us were, whether we didn't sign a striker over the summer. I was a little bit surprised. Well, we don't need to go over that ground again, but I was a little bit surprised how it panned out with Kane. It seemed like we would have done our homework a bit better. About well, you know what it would take to get to to get hold of him, um, but it has broadly speaking been working, playing without a recognised striker. But I'm not necessarily confident it will throughout the season, or at least not necessarily in every single important game. But I'm fairly confident, yeah.
0: Yeah, Dom. When you look that's at that's not a very
3: that's not a very profound uh, uh, observation, <laughs> to be honest. But you know,
0: I, I mean, we are what we're less than ten games in, so there's there's not much. You can't be that profound at this stage of the season, I guess. Um, Dom, the the difference, I guess, this season to, to previous seasons would be a three horse title race, if that's what what pans out. Um, does that present any different problems than a two horse title race?
4: Um, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think you look at Chelsea and Liverpool at the moment and it, it it's a three-horse title race between three of the best, te- certainly three of the best five teams in Europe, I think it's safe to say. And if it is to be a three-horse title race, what bodes well is those really good good performances both away at Stamford Bridge and Anfield, where City have gone, picked up four points, dominated both games Um and that's what makes this next, you know, with a game, you know, like Burnley and the games coming afterwards, it make, makes this this period of the season quite interesting because I think the playing without a striker, know, the, and the situation that Harry alluded to, the false nine thing at Chelsea and at Liverpool worked amazingly well. But are we now going to enter a run of games where it would just be good to have a little bit of a goal thief um, in there? I mean, for example, I mean, we'll move on to the injury news with Ferran Torres, I'm sure, but. You know, the Burnley game creates a different problem insofar as if you play a false night against Burnley, you're not going to move their centre-backs out into midfield and chase them. They'll just stay on the penalty spot and do headers all day. So there are different problems to crack, but I think if it is a three-horse title race, and I'd agree with you it is, City have put such a strong marker down there before the international break that I think it bodes very well.
0: Can I just say I love the phrase "do headers." I don't know what it is. It, it just sim- <laughs> it simplifies football to to like playground stuff. <laughs> yeah, they're
4: good. At, they're good at headering it,
2: aren't
0: they? Yeah, they're Alex, good at headering it. it. Do do some more headers, lads. That's that's what you're good at. Um, Harry, obviously, the Burnley game uh, now comes into focus. Burnley are yet to win. Uh, City. I mean, you should fancy it with recent history, shouldn't you? That's it's as simple as like like night follows day. City beat Burnley at the Etihad. That's how it works.
3: Yeah, well, um, uh, uh, when you sent your notes before the podcast, you wrote that question down, City should fancy this with recent issue, and I just wrote yes. So uh, that, that's all I have to say, yes, I think we should find <laughs> out this recent issue. You never know, but we ought to win realistically.
0: Yeah, I mean, Burnley are yet to win this season as well. Um, and like I say, why, why don't why don't you think they do put up a fight at the Etihad? Because they you, a couple of years ago they beat Liverpool at Anfield. You know, they've they've put up decent fights at other away grounds. Why is it always at the Etihad that they don't seem to just have it?
3: Uh, I mean, I think broadly speaking, they're quite a pragmatic side, and quite a pragmatic manager, and there's a, there's a sense of um, conserving their energy and. Um, uh, yeah, they have got some good results against other top teams, but broadly speaking, they do tend to get most of their points against you know the other lower, the, the other teams from the lower end of the table and the middle of the table. So, you know, if they if they lose, let's say two nil, that's a, almost a good result for them, as opposed to losing five or six nil. So I think that's the, the main reason they never really go for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what challenges though, Dom? Do you think City will face in this game given? I mean, I mean, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to say that, that that city will face any challenges. You just watch the performances they put in at Chelsea, PSG, and Liverpool.
4: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think the challenge to flag up and also bring everyone out in cold sweats by mentioning Leon is a uh, Maxwell Cornet. If uh, I mean, he's not he's not seen much game time since he's been at Burnley, but of course he scored um, maybe both goals when Leon won at um, no, maybe the first one when Leon won at uh, the Etihad. He definitely opened the scoring in that. Um, game that we shall not speak of in the Champions League quarterfinal. So, I mean, I think that maybe Burnley's best chances. City see Max corner in in the uh, warm-up and get completely spooked and think, oh no, it's happening again. But aside from that, I, it should be. I think there are versions of Ber- Sean Dyche's Burnley that City have beaten 5-0, who you would have, would have thought present a problem. I don't think this is the best Burnley side since it has been in the Premier League. I think it has... In Dwight McNeil, they have a, a young player of exceptional talent, but elsewhere it does seem to have got a little bit stale. Um, so, yeah, it's obviously you don't want to write a team off before they get there, but recent history shows they don't go well in this fixture and they're not heading in the right direction either, as, as probably as, as a club.
0: Yeah, Harry. I don't want to. I don't want to keep sending the the uh, the negative sort of vibes to your your way. Obviously, but uh, uh, we're talking Chelsea, PSG, Liverpool away in terms of performances. Yet the game before that was Southampton, and I guess that that must be the niggling doubt if City have that one of those performances where they just can't put the ball in the net.
3: Southampton are a better team than Burnley. To be fair, uh, they're in a very similar position in the table right now. But I wouldn't necessarily expect that to be the case. You know, come the end of the season. They play quite well in that game uh, against us earlier in this season. They attacked a little bit. There was a good chance where they um, they got a penalty. I mean, it was uh, fortunately for us it was overturned from VAR, but they got that from sort of pressing quite high up the pitch and um, nicking in against uh, Kyle Walker. I think it was he was trying to play out from the back. There's no way that Burnley will play like that. So it's a, it presents a different type of challenge to Southampton. I mean, the, the key issue is is going to be. Or maybe whether we miss a centre-forward, as Don uh, already pointed out earlier, Uh, there's a particular style of um, defending that Burnley are very good at and very used to, and and another style of defending that they would find a bit more challenging. So if we're just putting balls in the box, they can clear them easily. That's that's the key thing, is for us to avoid playing into their hands.
0: Yeah, let's stop letting them do headers. Essentially, as uh, as Dom (laughs) might say, yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's look at the players, uh, the City players who might need uh, a chance to perform in this game because um, uh, Dom City have been very consistent in terms of the the sides that they've been picking this season, and it's meant it's meant that that some players haven't necessarily had the opportunities that that they might have wanted in this start of the season. Let's start with Raheem Sterling because he's the he's one of the players on everybody's lips. His form for City has been worrying for some time, hasn't it?
4: Yeah, it's um, it's a funny situation with Raheem because it's almost as if the Euro, the Euro twenty twenty never happened. It was like he, he's he ended the season in not great form for City, and he started it again, still looking a little bit off. In the middle of this, he was you know he was England's talisman. He was England's best. Pl- he was the best player in England's first run to a major final for 50 years or or however long it is. Um, You know, Gary Lineker said that performance against the Czech Republic was one of the best they'd ever seen by a player in an England shirt. And I think that Raheem Sterling is an asset to City, hugely. Um, I I mean, I get the impression there's, for all we've talked about, how maybe he was, you know, he was one of the players who would have been happy to leave this summer. There was, was that group of players, but we know that's not an impediment to good performance. You know, Bernardo's back and playing great. Emirate Laporte's been really good. I think there's there's a willing. My impression is there's a willingness on the side of both Sterling and Guardiola to make this work. You know, Pep started with him in against PSG. Did that thing where he probably overly praised his performance a little bit. He when he was taking players off to try and force the goal against Southampton, he left Sterling on up front. You know, I think I think he is giving himself enough. He's giving Raheem enough rope here. And what with Ferran Torres's injury. And I mean, yeah, I know there's a complication with the Brazil players, with Gabriel might not be back for the weekend. Um, it looks like the centre forward spot by process of elimination is Raheem's there in a fixture where City traditionally score a lot of goals. So you would hope this will be a spark for him, but I think we've been hoping a lot of games will spark him for a while now. But say that that's with the lack of a central attacking player, just. I keep going back to this idea of that the Denmark semi-final, Sterling, if we can relocate that, then that guy in this City team is going to fly again. But it has been a while now. It's a good six or seven months since he looked anything like in a City shirt. And that is obviously a concern.
0: Yeah, Harry. The big question is obviously, you know, how does he get back into this team? Because there doesn't really, when when everybody's fit and available, like he, he doesn't get in on the left because that's that's where Grealish is playing at the moment. It's where Foden wants to play. He doesn't get in on the right because Jesus is playing really well there, and Mares wants to play in that position as well. And then the other option is is he centre forward, where he's he's probably not that many fans' favourite.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think he'll get back into the team in the sense that he will get games. That's Uh, obvious in terms of the rotation but in terms of yeah as to your question in terms of where does he find you know his place and where does he become a key player again that he's not been for several months Uh, I mean he I would prefer probably to see him through the center given that we haven't got a a proper center forward at the moment Um, and I do think that he can uh, he can be a threat for us. In that position, but I don't know why, but his his obviously his form's not good at the moment, but that could be a good spot for him. But I just don't know why I don't know why it's not working, really, to be honest with you.
0: The other option, obviously, Harry, is um Don mentioned there that uh Aymeric Laporte's come back and, and starting to play well. It has meant that John Stones hasn't had a single minute in a city shirt this season. Um that I mean, that's that is just unfortunate, isn't it, Harry? There's nothing more to it than that.
3: Yeah, I mean, unlike other areas of the pitch, the defence doesn't get rotated very much. You would you would presume that um, I mean Stones might get a look in, for example, uh, this weekend against Burnley, or um, or for that matter next week against Bruges. I mean, he probably will play quite soon. But in terms of actually dislodging Laporte and you know rekindling last season's partnership with Diaz, you would imagine it's a question of injury or loss of form, or maybe Laporte going to left back. Uh, which I guess is hypothetically possible, but it's a it's a difficult situation for Stones, as as indeed it was for Laporte last season. Central defenders tend to work best, you know, in a consistent pair, and we certainly saw that last season. So Stones is on the other end of of a uh, situation he was in, in last year.
0: Yeah, Dom, it is unfortunate because I guess if England don't make it all the way to the to the Euros final, he probably starts the season. But because they did, he doesn't.
4: Yeah, and. So, sort of, you know, to pick up the, the the thread with Raheem when when Stones has gone away and played for England in these two international, you know, he, he scored in midweek. The previous international break, he had a he was fantastic against Lewandowski. I thought, I thought so. It is at least encouraging that his form doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. But it's obviously he has the same as Harry said. He has the same problem Laporte had last year. I think what what's even more tricky for for John Stones at the moment is the way that. That side of that whole left-hand side of the team looks really balanced. That having Laporte there means that you can play Cancelo at left back as a right foot who cuts in, does his playmaking stuff, and gives a threat that no other team in world football probably has from fullback. That's quite like what João Cancelo offers, and you can have Grealish as a right foot cutting inside because you have Bernardo who's left-footed behind him. There's a nice balance to it. I think if you play. St- Everything in a Pep team is so connected. I think if you play Stones as a right, you know, as the right foot centre back, that bumps Ruben Diaz across, and then it all gets a very you sort of close, you're closing off sort of passing lanes and the like. Um, Yeah, there's a really, really nice balance to everything there at the moment. And you know, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll probably talk about him in a bit, but I think Zinchenko getting back to fitness might help Stones because then the two right footers at centre-back wouldn't be as much of a problem because you have a left foot or a left back and you can move things around that way. It's um, it's weird because, he's done, he's done like, as you say, he's done absolutely nothing wrong. For England, he looks in great form, but it's hard to make an argument that you, you want to play him in any sort of first-choice eleven at the moment.
0: Yeah, we've uh, we touched on uh, Ferran Torres's injury as well, Dom. Um it's just a massive blow, isn't it? He, you know, another brace for Spain. He you know, it's a, it's a bone fissure injury, so he's going to be out for at least a month. He's going to be missed.
4: Yeah, it's um it's a shame isn't it with like Pep's been saying all these nice things about Luis Enrique recently, like helping out Rodri and how they're how they're great mates and stuff. I mean, it's a little bit like he's lent his mate his sports car and it's come back without the exhaust or something. So particularly with Ferran having the the injury doubt going into the Nations League final and he plays and this happens. So it's, yeah, it's one of those sort of, there's no good international break injuries, but the the manner in which it's occurred is very, very frustrating. Yeah. Um, and it's frustrating for him as well because it's this idea now that he is going to be the most recognisable number nine in the squad and there was a run of games where you'd think you probably won't play a false night against Burnley or West Ham or Palace. So there was a run of games where he really could have, you felt like you were going to see, because the thing with Torres is he'll score goals, then he'll have quiet games and he'll be on the bench. But he's a player everyone's excited about. And I think these six weeks he's out now could have been the six weeks where we might have seen the next stage of Ferran Torres. I mean, that'll come around. The, the guy's got loads and loads of quality, but it it felt like the perfect time for him to really stamp his mark in this city team. And obviously that's not going to happen now.
0: Yeah. Uh, Harry, I want to touch on uh, Riyad Mahrez as well, because uh, I didn't realise until I actually went to look at this, he's played a similar amount of minutes this season to Raheem Sterling and had a kind of, it feels like quite a similar impact as well. He's not really got going yet this season, but He's got seven goals in seven games against Burnley, so you know if Pep's feeling a bit superstitious, this is the this is the perfect opportunity, isn't
3: it? Yeah, um, I mean another thing about Maris is he's, he's probably one of our strongest players in terms of having a shot from distance, which might be a, a useful um, option to have given that Burnley are uh, likely to defend quite deep. So um, I mean, he's another one who potentially could uh, could come on and uh, hopefully have a good game.
0: Yeah, what what do you make of him as as um, so far this season? Because he, like like with Sterling, he's just not really had had much opportunity.
3: Yeah, it's funny. The last time I was on the podcast, actually, uh, we also talked about Maras, and I uh, I confess that I had never approved of the signing in the first instance. <laughs> wrong, but he's kind of proving me right again a little bit in that in that he's sort of off the boil a little bit. I, I find him frustrating. He's, he's he's sort of a mystifying. Um, mystifying player to me. I, I still don't know. I mean, clearly he works well in the team overall. He's, he's had some excellent performances, got a lot of good goals and so on and so forth, but he feels like he lacks some of the sort of subtlety and versatility of uh, some of the other attacking players like um, Bernardo, De Bruyne, uh, uh, Phil Foden, etc. And I, I don't just mean that he's not as good as them, but I mean he's a different type of player. He's more of a um, more focused kind of a less, less, he's got a less diverse range of attacking talents for all that he is. Very, very good player, obviously. Oh, oh,
2: oh, O'Reilly. You need parts?
5: O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart: the professional parts people. Oh, oh, oh,
4: O'Reilly
5: Auto Parts.
0: Dom, I just want to touch on one other player because you mentioned Zinchenko coming back. Uh, Gundogan is likely to be back in uh, soon, if not now already. Um, where does he fit in? Because like, how do you drop any of City's attacking talent the way they've played in this last week?
4: Um, yeah, I mean, you want to see Gundian back in for his goal threat that he showed last season. You know, the, the arriving in the box, the smell of goals, as Guardiola would say, that he has. I generally think that our record with him, you know, City are a better team with Gundian in there. Um, particularly, I, I don't know what, what the stats are at now, but from the start of last season, um, the record when Rodri and Bernardo and Gundian start together is ludicrous. I think. I think there's one defeat and that defeat was the dead rubber at Brighton when they were down to 10 men. That might I think that's true but either way it's ludicrous when those three start together. Having said that, um obviously De Bruyne is back now. Bernardo's played on the on the left of the midfield three where he's never really played before and has got a great link up with Grealish, a great link up with Cancelo. So I mean, I'd imagine Gundo's route back in is he is games where De Bruyne goes to false nine, so it's a little bit like the eleven that got to the Champions League final last season, um, that eleven that worked so well, and why would you change it before the big game? Yeah, uh, why, why so, yeah. would you
0: do that? Yeah,
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably. I think Guardiola will always find a way to get Gundogan back in his team because he's he's an archetypal Guardiola footballer, and yeah. It, so with with this run of games coming up, when you're you know weekend midweek, Gundogan can make passages of games easy. He can make you it you know people save their legs. He just rotate. So recycles possession so expertly. Um, He sort of takes a strain off people around him. And when you get into this sort of meat of the autumn, winter of the season, he's just, he's, he's invaluable in that respect.
0: Yeah. Uh, now uh, one other thing that we need to talk about on uh, Saturday at half time on Saturday Stan Horn will be presented with a First Division winners medal for his part in City's title in 1968 he didn't play enough games that season to qualify for a medal automatically due to injury uh, but the Football League has since fallen into line with the Premier League and now gives medals to players who featured in five games which Horn did uh, it makes him the first black player to be recognised with a First Division winners medal uh, I spoke to him last season when he was still waiting to hear about the news this is what he said I
5: I just felt a bit left out at times because I had a terrible uh, Achilles tendon injury. And it, it, took me, it took me ages to get over it. I, I, when I originally got it, I think it was in pre-season. So I missed most of the pre-season on that, that year. Um, tried to get fit by resting and coming back, breaking down, coming back, breaking down. And then um, they decided the last chance was to have an operation on it. And it was a successful operation. I still took a while to get back in, uh, into, into training again and get fit. But, um, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was a bit of an odd scene. I, I didn't feel, yeah, I didn't feel really a part of it because you were outside looking in. Um, and the odd games that I did get, I, I really enjoyed. But, as um, you say, the team was set in stone most of the, most of the year. Um, probably only about 12 people, 12 or 13 people, basically used um, in, the, in the actual team. So, um, yeah, I, although I was, I was well pleased that, um, that we won the league, I, I just felt a little bit out of it. But now they, they're sick talking about this medal thing. Well, I've just rejuvenated my enthusiasm for that year because uh, it would be sensational if I could uh, just get a medal we we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, if it happens, it happens. Uh, but, um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great. It'd be great for myself. Bobby Kennedy was the same. Uh, and there were Harry Dowd, who sadly passed away a few years ago. I mean, uh, now you're talking about they're a, a proper gentleman, a real good character. They were all they all were at Main, at Main Road. Um, so I just hope it happens for, for, for all of them.
0: Well, I was going to say, what, what would it mean to have your contributions to that season recognised like
5: that? Yeah, I, it's brilliant. Especially, I mean, it's Manchester City, isn't it? You can't get much bigger now than, than Manchester City. So to be, uh, to be looked on as something, like part of the history and part of something you built, um, well, it's just, it's just a dream. Just an absolute dream. I mean, uh, the article that broke in the paper on Sunday was, I think more basically because I'm 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 black origin, uh, and I think that was the angle that the 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 the, the, um, the the article in the paper was about. Now that is one side of it that um, it was a little bit tainted in some ways in the game because I I did get a little bit of abuse, not particularly from spectators because to spectators in them days it was a novelty to see a black person, but. Um, it was more more opposition, uh, opposition um, abuse. That I got, but I learned to I learned to um, put up with that and uh, manage to get through okay.
1: Please give us your backing patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast
0: that was stan horn speaking to me last season um harry it's a nice little thing to to, to be doing this at, uh, at pitch side at halftime on saturday isn't it
3: yeah and uh, another thing that occurred to me is that um, of course the month of october is black history month and um uh, not I, I mean i assume it's just a, a coincidence that, that that's when it's come around that they're, they're finally granting him the medal but it is good you know he's he's uh if I'm not wrong, he's the first black player to win the first division title in English football. Uh, certainly, uh, I'm the first black player for City as well. So it, it's great that, um, that his contribution has been recognised in that sense. Though, of course, he would rightly point out that um, it's, it's an honour that any footballer would deserve and, and rightly so
0: yeah it's uh, it's just not I think it just feels like a really nice story and nice to see so'm I'm, uh, I'm glad it's going to happen this weekend uh, anyway moving on it's time to look ahead at city in Belgium this week city's Champions League campaign restarts after a win and a defeat they sit in third in the group with Tuesday's opponents Bruges ahead by a point. City are going to Belgium for only the fourth time in their history. Sam Roscoe's taking a look at their record in the country. <laughs>
1: City's first ever trip to play a competitive game in Belgium came roughly 52 years ago. It was the 12th of November 1969. The year before, they'd been knocked out in the first round of the European Cup when they'd gone in as English champions. Malcolm Allison was left a little embarrassed after he told reporters City would terrify the cowards of Europe but he and manager Joe Mercer watched the team crash out to Fenerbahce in the first tie.
6: With the success they've had in the last four years, I think that they now can go and play against the best teams in Europe.
0: Yeah. I hate to remind you, but it's almost inevitable. Uh, you Remember when you won the league championship, you said you'd show the cards of Europe how to play next year. Have you got any message for Europe this time? Now you're in the Cup
5: Winners' Cup.
6: I think we'll definitely get through the first round next year.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, Malcolm. Malcolm Allison was speaking there at a dinner to celebrate the 1969 FA Cup win. That trophy meant City were back in Europe again, this time in the European Cup Winners' Cup. They won the competition that year. On their way to lifting that trophy, City beat Leicester. It was a thumping win, 5-0 at Main Road and 3-0 at Hermann van der Puten Stadion. City wouldn't go to Belgium again for another nine years. It
7: was 4-0 from the first leg. I do recall uh, I was a Platinum season ticket holder at the time and um, unfortunately, because of getting home and I was a bit younger at that stage, I did I um, actually leave the home leg a couple of minutes before the end and missed the last two goals. So yeah, they did win 4-0 in the first leg, which should have made the second leg comfortable.
1: Eddie O'Donnell is a City fan and went to both legs of the UEFA Cup tie with Standard Liège in 1978. Despite that 4-0 lead, the second leg wasn't that comfortable.
7: They lost the return leg 2-0 and my abiding memory of the leg is, is the Gary Owen sending off, which occurred just after the, the second Age goal and there was an altercation on the pitch and I do, one of the few vivid memories I have from standing behind the goal that night is of uh, Gary Owen running 20 or 30 yards to get involved in this altercation. Uh, and ultimately
1: getting the red card. But Eddie says that two 0 defeat in the away leg wasn't that much of a surprise. It was sort of fairly consistent with my experience of
7: following City at the time that they were very good at home and not so good away from home. Although to be fair, they went on a run that year that got them to the quarter final of the competition.
1: After the quarter final defeat to Borussia Mönchengladbach Gladbach, though, City fans had to wait 24 years to see their side play in Europe again. And when they did they were treated to their third trip to Belgium.
8: On the night that Ryan Giggs scored that wonder goal for United in the FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal, we were on the way home from a a Division 2 game that night and the radio were going absolutely mad about the goal. My dad turned to me and my sister in the car and said, it won't always be like this. It won't always be them that get these moments. One day we'll be in Europe and when we are, I'll take you to your first away game. Forget the fact that our first European away game was TNS at the Millennium Stadium. Uh, he made good on his promise and took us to Lockeren.
1: That's City fan and podcast regular Richard Burns. In 2003, City were in the UEFA Cup after topping the Fair Play League. And having beaten TNS in the qualifying round, they were drawn against Lockeren of Belgium. Kevin Keegan's side were leading 3-2 from the first leg at home. Richard's dad,
6: Tony, picks up the story. I suppose like most um, people, you've got your memories of your uh, first time at Main Road, first time on the Kipax and all that, and and definitely memories of your first European away game. And um, to be, to be honest, it's not really the game or even the result that I remember. Now, I hadn't hadn't been drinking, but for some reason, after we'd got off the plane at whatever airport we'd gone to, I was on the supporters coach on the way to the stadium, uh, became unwell and woke up with people bending over me, expressing all sorts of concern. Richard
8: explains more. When we were on the coach out there, my dad sort of took unwell from nowhere and just passed out and then like a sort of sitcom there just happened to be a doctor on board who assured us that he wasn't having a heart attack and he came around and we had to be put in like a, a taxi with a uh, one of the sort of I think quite low-level directors who had to you know honor his duty of care but me and my sister heard him uh, on the phone to his colleague saying yeah I've got a, a, a fan here it's a Mr Burns and um, he's passed out he's taken on well. we're gonna make sure he's okay all that kind of stuff and then we heard him say if it doesn't get better, he might have to come back on the director's plane.
1: The teenage Burns' eyes were lighting up at the thought, but, as Tony explained, it ended up being nothing serious.
6: And on the way, there was talk of making uh, arrangements to get me and my two children, the teenage children, back on one of the, the team plane or the, uh, the official plane. Now, at some point on the journey... Um, I had to ask the driver to stop and I absolutely threw my guts up. I was violently sick. Tony
1: and Richard then went to the game where City won 1-0 and went through to the next round. Richard, though, has never let it go.
8: He was sick, uh, made a full recovery um, and in the nicest way possible. I've never been so upset at my dad for being healthy we missed out on what I assume would have been quite a memorable flight
1: home. And that was the last time City played a competitive match in Belgium. Their record against Belgian opposition is pretty good, having won all three of their home legs and two of their three away legs. With the way this Champions League group has started though, Club Rouge could be quite a tough little test.
8: This is Nader Manuha, and you're listening to the Blue Moon
0: Podcast.
1: This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast.
0: So that was Sam Roscoe looking at City's record in Belgium. Uh, They go to Flanders on Tuesday to face Bruges. Uh, Let's speak now to Scott Coyne from the Belgian Football Podcast. Hi, Scott. Hi Dave, how are you doing? I'm not too bad, thanks. Uh, two things before we before we start, because uh, I spoke to you on the Belgian Football Podcast a few weeks ago, uh, I was hoping for a little bit of a more, well, European accent than the one that I've got. So uh, can you just explain to the listeners why we've got a Scottish man on to talk about Bruges?
9: <laughs> you have no idea how often I get asked this story. Um Almost daily. It's a good story. Actually. <laughs> um, the, the Belgian Football Podcast has been uh, running for a couple of seasons now, and um, when I got involved, it was very, very early on. I came across the, the BFP by accident, and uh, Ben Jackson, who, who founded the pod, uh, used to write write some tactical analysis pieces for uh, total football analysis, which some people might know. And I dropped Ben a line and said I loved what he was doing because um, I, I love Belgium as a country. I love Belgian culture. I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time there and see see a reasonable bit of the country and, and know that I really, really like it. I obviously love my football, um, even though I'm not based in Belgium. Um, and Ben very quickly said to me, would you be interested in kind of getting involved? And, of course, I thought coming on as a guest to talk about my own love of Belgium, Belgian football. He went no, no, no seriousness. Jump on board, and you know, let's let's build this thing. And we've just had a had a roller coaster uh, couple of years, and things have really taken off, and and very quickly we became the number one English language podcast covering covering Belgian football, and discovered there's kind of quite an appetite for it there because it is one of the most heavily scouted leagues in Europe um, for for talent for, for for lots of reasons. So yeah, we've we've been we've been having a great time, and plenty to come from us.
0: Yeah, well, let, let me tell you, I'm I'm glad of an English language podcast for uh, for one of City's opposition. Whenever it comes up, I'm de- I'm desperate to hear the English language podcast, and so that's uh, it's a good thing. Uh, my second question is, um, how do I say Bruges? Am I okay saying Bruges, or do I have to say Bruger? Because I'm not sure I can get through this podcast saying Bruger. It doesn't feel right. Yeah, well, I mean, people
9: kind of, I I always tell people, just go what you're most comfortable with. I mean, I tend to use Club Bruges myself most of the time, um, but some journalists have actually said to me, well, you know, if if strictly speaking, you should really be referring to them as Club Bruges. And, you know, I I think it's either or. I'm comfortable with either.
0: Well, let's keep me comfortable and stick with Bruges, shall we? Um, how, How have they been doing this season? Um, they've they
9: 've started kind of quite strongly um they 're currently sitting fourth at the moment, which might not sound great, but it 's only one point off the off the top um We're ten games into the the Belgian pro league season now, and they 've won five of those games and and kind of drawn four of them. Um, the one defeat they've had was an absolute battering against Ghent but they lost 6-1 which was a bit of a freak result in lots of ways and um, there's lots of unusual things about that game that really don't happen very often um, but they, they've been doing quite well the, the interesting thing is before the summer transfer window closed they made two quite significant signings which I think have really um, led to them having a pretty balanced side now which is, is is good for them because it's meant they can kind of settle down and, and, and play their best football they, they went and signed a Kamal Sowa from from Leicester for, for 9000000 um, million, right-winger, exciting young player who actually spent last season on loan, um, well, the last season and a half on loan in, in Belgium uh, with another top flight side, Leuven. Um, he went back to Leicester, his parent club, um, at the end of last season um, and nobody knew where he was going to go and he's actually gone to, to Bruges on a, on a permanent deal which I think is a good move for him actually. I think he really fits what they're doing there. The other significant signing was Jack Hendry from from Oostend, another top flight Belgian club. He had a brilliant season, kind of debut season in Belgium last year um, while he was on loan um, at Oostend from from Celtic, his parent club at that time. Really, really good and he's he's he's. A real natural leader, um, and that's just led to them having a really good balance. So they're they're playing quite well. They're quite high in confidence, um, and they're they're quite relaxed about their European football at the moment. I think,
0: Harry, when you look at uh, at the positioning in the group for City as well at the minute. Um, it's kind of a key double-header for City, this, uh, against Bruges, because, I mean, City won one, lost one. It's not a disaster, but you probably wouldn't have expected them to be going into this double-header third in the table.
3: No, you wouldn't. And, I mean, um, if we lose one of these two games, then the pressure's really on, because then even if we win the other one, we we're obviously remain behind Bruges uh, after these two games. So we need four points, really, or obviously ideally six. Um, so the pressure is much more on than than you would have expected, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I mean, Dom, when you look at it from uh, again from City going to to Belgium for this first game, I guess get the get the harder of the two ties out of the way first is is one aspect. Um, but there's uh, there's still this kind of feeling of very little cause for alarm after the PSG display, I guess.
4: Yeah, I think I think it's a situation where um, Guardiola's well documented sort of. Absolute obsession for the Champions League will actually come in handy here because if there was any danger of being a little bit complacent about these games, he will. I mean, I, I think we all know how Pep's press conference is going to go next week. It's going to be talking in great detail about how tremendous several Bruges players are. You know, you know, like when when he's when he's gone on in his Nathan Redmond and uh, <laughs> Chris Wood sort of eulogies. I, I reckon there'll be there'll be four or five of them prep for the Bruges lads. Um, so. That helps, um, but also the fact that, obviously, Bruges have, have got really good results in the group so far, um, which has taken people a little bit by surprise because it was, and it often happens this way when you look at the pots, it it was getting referred to as a bit of a group of death because of PSG and RB Leipzig. Now, I think Leipzig, as we saw in that berserk game that the Etihad, have got a new coach who's playing in a different style and they're a little bit all over the place. And PSG have always got a new coach and it's always a little bit all over the place, despite the star names they have there. Um so I think those first two games, Bruges have have kind of made made the most of playing supposedly stronger teams who are a little bit in flux. Um I think the course of positivity with City along with the fact that Pep will have them very well drilled, is that City for you know whether there's flaws about there being no striker and all the rest of it, they're certainly not a team in flux. They're a team who know their roles in a way that I think Bruges exploited the way that Leipzig and PSG didn't very well. Whereas I think I think City present a different challenge just because they're comfortable in their own skin in a way that those other two supposed heavyweight teams in the group aren't.
0: Yeah. Um, Scott, in terms of of how uh, Bruges have approached the, group, the the Champions League group so far, like like Dom said, many expected them to struggle. Um, how, what's the reception been like for, for for in Bruges for the for how they've approached the group?
9: I think there's been kind of delight generally in Belgium and you know in the Bruges community generally uh, with with how things have gone so far because um, I think there was an expectation. Uh, on lots of people's part, that they were going to take a big battering from PSG in the opening game. And that was based as as much in the fact that last time they met, which wasn't too long ago, um, Bruges took a 5-1 battering um, in Belgium off them. And actually, when you look at that game now, PSG didn't play... Uh, too great in the opening game which allowed uh Bruges to kind of assert themselves as a kind of confidence crew in the game and obviously going to Leipzig um who are in a bit of a state of flux at the moment allowed them to really exploit that um because they're playing quite confidently and have a good settled side at the moment Bruges that they're able to go out there and and get the win um surprisingly easily actually um so they'll they be delighted. I think you know the I referred to Bruges being slightly relaxed about their approach to to, to Europe now. I, I think that makes them slightly more dangerous because they know that a PSG win against Leipzig and even if City do come to the Ambridal next week and win for for uh, Bruges is likely to finish third. So they can go out there and express themselves and just see what happens. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting, I think.
0: Yeah, how how will Bruges approach this game as the, as the home game of the doubleheader?
9: Well, um, they're known for asserting themselves um, at home, they like to uh, they like to try and set the pace, obviously, as any side at home should do. Um, this game is slightly different, obviously, because they don't often come up against you know the the firepower that that, that City have or that PSG do. So, Bruce's ability to necessarily take the game uh, to City isn't isn't going to be what it would normally be domestically or against another side in Europe. Um, the interesting thing tactically, from a Bruce point of view, is that their left and right backs uh, so ball and Mata generally play quite a high line which um, they're not going to get away with doing that here much like in the game against PSG so their, um, their willingness to kind of track back and just get the balance right there is going to be very very important otherwise they'll, they'll, they'll get cut to shreds but they've proved that they can they, they can do that um, so it'll be interesting to see how they line up but they've got a very settled side at the moment so I think it's quite easy to predict what the, the starting eleven is going to be
0: yeah, Harry. When it comes to opposition like this, because obviously City have never met Bruges uh, before, that there, we're going into this game, um, I, I'd say as, as, as City fans, fairly ignorant of what Bruges are going to offer in terms of, uh, of opposition. Um, is there a case for having confidence with that ignorance, though? Because, like like Scott said, the, the, like the, there are not many teams with City's sort of firepower and ability. Should City actually care who they're playing against?
3: Well, on the contrary, I wouldn't describe myself as fairly ignorant. I'd describe myself as extremely ignorant um, <laughs> on, on the subject of Bruges. Um, so, yeah, I, I really don't know what to expect, although um, I think it'll be a good game probably given that the uh, results that they've had so far. Um, I think the fans shouldn't necessarily care that much about who we're playing in the sense that um, we, sh- we can and do feel confident about uh, our ability against pretty much anyone. Obviously, the players and coaches do care, and I'm sure, uh, like Dom said, that Pep will have examined every single uh, permutation of the way that Bruges might play, every single player, all the danger points, etc. But we can be a bit more relaxed than Pep. Needless to say, which is good for our blood pressure.
0: Yeah, and maybe maybe not for Guardiola's though, Dom, because you can see it, it's, it's not gonna, he's not going to he's not going to look at Bruges' tactics and go, you know what we need to do, a back three, is he? Surely not. <laughs>
4: Oh, what a time to roll that one out again. Um, yeah, was, <clears throat> there was something I was doing through the week where I, kept, I happened back across the thing in one of Marty Perenau's books about Pep. That, and I don't know if he still does this, but because this was his first season at Bayern Munich, how he gets so nervous on the days of games that he doesn't eat before the game, um, even friendlies apparently. <sighs> now, if he still does this on Champions League nights, I mean... He's got to be absolutely starving.
0: And yeah, it's a five five forty five kickoff though, so he's uh, he's not got as long well, to go. Least, I mean,
4: having been lucky <laughs> enough to have um, holidayed in Bruges for a long weekend a while ago, he's in a fantastic place to completely you know fill himself up afterwards. You know, get get on the moulin frit and you know properly you know let it all hang out, Pep. Because he, you know, I, I I always think after that anecdote, I always think Champions League games. He must be starving. That must be why he does some mad things in these games occasionally. He's just, you know, it's, it's sort of mm. hunger delirium.
0: Yeah, he's just hallucinating. That's all he's doing. He's, yeah, he, yeah. There's, there's nothing going on in there. He's just, he spent his entire football career hallucinating through the Champions League. Scott, let's look at, um, obviously that PSG result was a was a big result for Bruges in, in the opening game. Um, what does City need to be wary of to, to make sure that that doesn't happen to them?
9: Well, I think, you know, a, a big name um, around Europe at the moment, and he's, he's been a big name for a while, um, the left winger, Noah Lang, um, Arsenal and Milan are tracking him very, very closely at the moment and um, nobody expects him to be at Bruges in the summer. I think uh, Lang's an important player to uh, shut down, really. A lot of what Bruges do goes through Lang and for a lot of last season um, and the start of the season, actually, the reason Bruges were slightly unbalanced was because they were alternating between playing Lang and Charles Taketelar, who who's now been playing uh, up front fairly regularly um, since Sowa and and Henry came in, um, and that's just meant the balance is much better. But he's um he's a very good player. He's been off the balls, excellent as well, and he is um well up to this level. Um, so I think if if City can kind of nullify him as a threat, um, then that that will go a long way to um the sort of results that he might get here. De Ketelar's a really fine young player as well. I mean, he's, again, he's another one a bit like Lang, who I don't think is going to be there um, come the summer. He's got a big move ahead of him. Um, He fancies himself as a kind of out-and-out striker, which, although he's been doing kind of quite well, he's he's top scorer, four goals domestically for Bruges so far in, in the 10 games, not bad, performing well, scored for the Red Devils Uh, on international duty the other day as well. Um, Sky's the limit for him. Um, But I still don't think he's a natural striker. And all of the data and all of the stats tells us that actually his natural role is better on on the wing, funnily enough, where Lang plays. So uh, Philippe Clement, uh, Bruges' coach, has got an interesting uh, set of options here. He could play de Ketelar on the wing he's naturally at his best, or he could he could play him as the striker, he could switch him in Lang. He's got that option within games as well. So uh, Lang and De Ketelar are, are, are the main ones to watch. Another one um English football fans might be aware of is Hans van Aken. Um central midfielder sometimes can play as a kind of holding midfielder, but is known to be more of an attacking midfielder for the most part. Um he's he's a good player who who needs some attention. Um and Max Ritz, who also plays in midfield, kind of a quite combative physical midfielder who's likely to start ahead of Rud Vormer, another name that people might know. Um who's probably past his best now. I think I could get away with saying that, in all honesty. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the main people to watch out for are Noah Lang and uh, Charles de Ketelaar.
0: Yeah, well, let's uh, let's get some predictions on the board. We've raised three hundred and seventy pounds so far on this season's charity bet. William Hill is giving each of us a ten pound correct score single on City's games. The winnings are going to the Manchester City fans food bank support group. They're helping the Trussell Trust with donations for all of Greater Manchester's food banks. Uh, let's start with uh, City's game against Burnley. Uh, for this one, I've gone for a four nil win, which is fifteen to two and seventy five pounds. If I'm right, Don, what's your uh, what's your score for Burnley? Well, g-
4: given this is Got their uh, money for a very good cause at stake. Um, I wouldn't want to be that person that doesn't put their lottery numbers on the week they come in. So, I think I've got to say City five Burnley nil because the last four games the Etihad have been that score. So yeah, it's a, nil, it's
0: irresponsible yeah. not to, isn't it? It's uh, Death that's, taxes, yeah. etcetera. Yeah, yeah, uh, fourteen to one, hundred and forty pounds if you're right. Uh, Harry, what have you gone for?
3: Oh, uh, well, I'm uh, remembering back to a few years ago. I feel like we used to beat Burnley six nil quite often. So I'm going with six nil.
0: I do hope you're right because that's twenty five to one and two hundred and fifty pounds if you're right for uh, a good cause. Uh, Don, what are you having for Bruges? Um, I'm remembering all those Champions
4: League clean sheets that City got last season that they've not managed to do yet. I think it's time to get back to that, and I'm going for a, a solid two nil to Pep Guardiola's man.
0: Uh, yeah, solid two nil is six to one and sixty pounds if you're right. Uh, Scott, I'm I'm notoriously bad at predictions, so uh, let's have your prediction for City against Bruges, and then maybe we might win some money. Uh, I can see a, a narrow City win, so I'll, I, I can 2-1 uh, City, I think. 2-1 uh, City is 8-1 to one and £80 if you're right. Harry, what have you gone for?
3: Well, after our sensational 6-0 win at the weekend against Burnley, I think we're going to be uh, having a bit of a hangover, so I'm going to go for a nervy 1-1
0: nervy 1-1 one it one. Uh, does add £100 to the pot 10 to 1 uh, so if you're right it's 100 quid. you've got to be 18 or over to gamble prices can change and for more on responsible gambling have a look at begambleaware.org uh, Scott thank you very much for joining us on today's show pleasure it's been great great to be here thanks for having me where can people find the Belgian Football Podcast if they want to uh, go and have a look for it
9: you can find us on all the usual podcast platforms. We've got a weekly weekly show where we cover all the news and action around Belgian football and a series of regular specials as well where we're joined by guests from, from clubs across Belgium uh, too. And you can find us on Twitter at Belgian Podcast and on uh, Facebook and Instagram as well.
0: Now, time to move on. And Howard Hawkins back this week. He's looking at sports washing and what lessons Newcastle fans can learn from City's takeover in 2008. All the ducks are swimming in the...
2: Hello and welcome to my latest edition of Podwashing, where I absolve football fans from having a moral conscience via the medium of monologues. It's been another fascinating week on football's moral high ground, where the air is thin but the soul is pure, due to a certain club takeover that you may have heard a few things about. Now, I'm not going to lie, I wanted this takeover to happen from the moment I first heard about it. Perhaps to expose the hypocrisy once more that you be using Starbuck drinking Twitter fanatic journalists and fan fanbases. Whataboutery at its finest form for my good self, no doubt. And whataboutery can definitely be a tiresome thing to read and hear, so I kind of apologise. But it's also a useful accusation for hypocrites to use so that the said hypocrisy is not exposed. Whataboutery certainly has its place. Just certain people don't want it to have that place. Anyway, why would I want the takeover to happen anyway? Maybe it's because I'm a Saudi regime apologist. It's such a fine line nowadays. Perhaps a little part of me thought it would be take the heated emphasis off City, their wealth and their owner. But then I noted that City were trending on Twitter across the whole weekend, so there goes that theory. Because City are the go-to reference point for all discussions of the Newcastle takeover what it means, how fans should react, and where it may lead. But if such takeovers do make you feel dirty, then let's get the washing out of the way and clean you up. Yeah, about that sports washing thing. Because ultimately, who are Newcastle's new owners sports washing? Who did Sheikh Mansour sports wash? Are Arsenal fans now more accepting of the Saudi or Abu Dhabi regimes? Or Sunderland fans, United fans? No, of course not. So we're expected to believe that the Saudi regime is going to spend billions of pounds to sportswash one single set of football fans in a single city in England. Seems a rather excessive step to take to win the hearts and minds of 0.001% of the population when they don't need to win the hearts and minds of anyone as recent years have shown. And imagine the mental gymnastics needed to argue that taking over a football club is the best way for a despotic regime to soften the opinion of its practices. It clearly has the opposite effect. Staying away from football is the best way to get away with murder, literally and metaphorically. Now, the reply from certain football journalists, I don't need to name names, would be to correct me on what sports washing actually is and accuse me of conflating issues in the situation. Then that has been their policy all along to change the definition of sports washing to keep the argument valid. It is, after all, a concept that did not exist just a few years ago, which makes its interpretation as flexible as you wish it to be. Whatever I say, a new definition will not be far behind. That way it's always a thing and it always exists and it's always an issue. No one really cares of course, you only have to see tribalism at play when you see endless fans confuse City's owner with Qatar or Saudi Arabia to realise that. But anyway, I digress. What can City fans teach Newcastle fans going forward? Well straight off the bat, they will have to get used to the narrative, the romance of old money. Because certain clubs are coated in Teflon and their club will never be again. As for signings, their approach will surely be different from cities, as times have changed. Brian Marwood spelt it out, all of it, sometime around 2009. City knew the drawbridge that is FFP was coming, so it went on quite the splurge. It was great fun in the days before Twitter or geopolitics or net spend was a thing for me and others. Next, if a football journalist finds your owners repugnant, then so be it. They have a right to, whatever you may suspect their motives to be, whatever the hypocrisy that may be involved. They may still be right, and you know it. I've said it a thousand times, but football fans are a strange breed. We take credit for our team's success, over which we had no control really, but disassociate ourselves from their failures or missteps, as we are entitled to do. We're just for years, and don't have to defend anything apart from our own conduct. So I could have done anything different in the past decade regarding City. It's probably that I would have turned a blind eye more, as I tend to do now, rather than engage, because it leads nowhere. It's just people arguing on the internet, standing their ground and wasting their time. Focus on the pitch, because that's what the sports used to be about. Don't defend the owners, just enjoy the football and the journey. Don't celebrate the owners, celebrate what they bring to your club, because you have a right to do that. Don't ever compare net spends, don't ever obsess over numbers, but do be aware of what is going on in the world. I'll say it again, we are not culpable. Have fans lost their moral code? And if so, why football has not held to the same standards? There's barely a footballer in the world that would refuse to join Manchester City or Newcastle on moral grounds. There's barely a manager that would not grab the chance to coach those same players. Did Vincent company lose his moral code? Did Pep, David Silver, or the others, the many wonderful employees at City and the global City Group, that they all turn a blind eye? It's easy to preach morals to others when it does not concern you. But as many Newcastle fans who will have criticised City's owner in the past are finding out, it's very different when it's you needing to take a stand and make sacrifices. Because I would not swap my last 10 years as a City fan for anything. Sorry, and all that. We're all just trying to survive, dealing with our own problems, and we'll take pleasure and joy and satisfaction and shared experiences where we can, where we find them. And that's kind of key. City and Newcastle Newcastle take it over at a time when the two fan bases were desperate for success. Desperate. City seemed to be on the up, slowly, but it was not really the case. Faxing was actually a wrong gun, and the club was once more in a perilous position financially. It was ever thus, it seems. And it seemed this is how all our lives would play out like this. This purgatory. Many people's second club out of sympathy. A club that were no threat to anyone. Newcastle have held that mantle for many since 2008, and that has gone forever. This is nothing for them to mourn. If you're universally loved, you're probably failing. No probably about it but now City being taken over by the Saudi regime would garner a rather different reaction from City fans than it would have done in 2008 because the desperation is gone. Of course Newcastle taking taken on money as City did from a country that already has its tentacles deep within UK society. Critics will say that football clubs are different, they are part of the community, should be separated from how the rest of the world operates and belong to the fans but the top level of football I just cannot agree. There's a tacit acceptance from me at least that to get to the top you have to lose some of that connection to the fans. Sad, but that is modern football and it's been that way long before Middle Eastern money arrived. Top clubs still do amazing work in the community every single day, but there's still a disconnect between club and fans in my opinion. These are multi-billion pound businesses now, owned by billionaires intent on domination and power and a return on investments. People say that football is a place of community has gone but football is more than the top six or so in the Premier League it's still there in thousands of places across the land and it's still there amongst the fans but if you're a Manchester City fan as far as I'm concerned you will always be one and only that so you have to deal with the hand that you're dealt imagine waking up and realising your team is the best in the land and all the world if your new owners do this right you won't have to imagine for long there won't be dreams there will be experiences and then your memories And it would take one hell of a moral stand and a moral conscience to decide not to be a part of that when virtually everyone else is. So don't worry, be happy. You only live once after all.
6: I'm
7: Clyde Tilsley.
9: Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, Balmy Night, Barcelona, all that Yeah, that Clive Tilsley, um, you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast, enjoy
1: This is the Blue Moon Podcast, facebook.com Slash Blue Moon Podcast.
0: That was Howard Hocken. um I just want to touch on this before we move on because um, Harry, it seems like the uh, landscape has changed a little bit from two thousand and eight when when City were taken over, and I, I kind of want to dig into the, the the mindset of fans that have had a takeover like Cities, like Newcastle's. Um, do you think fans are a little bit more informed than they were when City were taken over?
3: Yes and no. I mean, I would say people are probably not better informed. They're just more opinionated. Um, so positions have hardened, like everyone's perspective is hardened. I think that, um, probably in 2008, it was seen a bit more of a novelty when city city were taken over by the current owners. Um, and then there was that daft bidding war with, um, United for Berbatov. I remember that well, cause it was the day that I uh, was graduating from uni, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I don't think the debate about this, these types of debate uh, achieve very much because people uh, tend to argue in sort of bad faith. Everyone's misrepresenting everyone else's opinion. And there's always the assumption that your perspective is determined by the club that you support, which yeah. I guess often it is true. Um, and the other thing that I find very frustrating is that we, we never really seem to have a discussion about um, what we want in terms of football ownership or football governance more broadly. We just have a discussion about what we don't want or what we don't like. And so that never really gets us anywhere because you can only ever criticise the status quo rather than trying to propose something else.
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of, of fans, Dom, um, what responsibility do we as City fans have, do you think, about about engaging with City's ownership?
4: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the Newcastle um, example over the past week it, I think draws it out pretty clearly that Newcastle fans can't control who owns their club. The last 14 years have shown that. If Newcastle fans did control who, who controlled their club, Mike Ashley wouldn't have been there for 13 or 14 years. That's beyond doubt. You can control how you engage with your club, though. So Newcastle fans can't control who their owners are, but they can control whether they're putting Saudi flags around their shoulders and on their bio and... In some cases, some people have abused Jamal Khashoggi's widow on social media. That's the behaviour of imbeciles, and you can't be doing that. But so I, th- I think it, it comes to a matter of right. How, how do you affect how do you affect this positively for yourself? Um, I don't think it's right for Newcastle fans to be blamed in any way for what's gone on here. They don't have control over that. But I think one thing that the lesson from the City thing is, and it'd be easy if this happened in Newcastle as well, is an owner comes in and is making all your dreams come true. You can kind of take your eye off the ball a little bit. It does all get a bit Manchester, thanks you, Sheikh Mansour. And then in City's case, 10 years later, you look at, you know, ticket prices have sort of gone up and up and up. And we just kind of let that slide a bit maybe um, because we're all having a great time. And yeah, I, I think there's nothing you can do about your owners being there, but if you can organise as a fan base to make sure Tickets are more afford, are even more affordable than they are at the moment, and make that better. Increase access to fans who maybe haven't been able to get to games. Make sure that you know the club is really a properly helpful thing in its community. It's a community club. You know, we, we're we're raising money for the um, the City fans food bank. Um, City fans food bank support. Sorry, on this podcast, and that's a great example of what community football clubs can do. There are similar operations up in Newcastle. So. I think when we talk about this, when there'll there'll be certain people who understandably have very strong views on the human rights side of things and how, you know, the Premier League have found the separation between PIF and the Saudi state, but this is the sovereign fund of an abhorrent regime, but also a regime who has billion pound deals with the UK government. So let's not pretend Newcastle fans are going in and, and, you know, improving national relations here. That's not their job. They can't control that, but what they can control as a club with a brilliant fan base and a brilliantly interactive fan base within their community and city fans have this opportunity as well. And people like the food bank lads do it magnificently. Your club has a platform. Now, whether you like where that platform comes from, you can, there are elements of it that you can use for good and engage with it positively. And then there's other stuff that you have no control over. And I don't think you deserve criticism of, you do have control over flags in your Twitter bio though. So come on. Have worried yourself about that, but yeah, enjoy your team winning games. It's God. There's so much we've seen over the last eighteen months. There's so much absolute rubbish we all have to endure on this on this planet. Your team kicking the ball in the goal is amazing. It still feels great. You you, you can't turn that feeling off because of who an owner is. Some people might get turned off over time by who the ownership is, and yeah, we I think we all know City fans who've. Moved away from the club over the last thirteen years, and if Newcastle fans do that over time, fair enough. If Newcastle fans are absolutely buzzing next time the ball flies at the Gallagher end, they shouldn't feel bad about that for one second. It's one of the joys they have in their life. But yeah, I just think we've got to be sent. We've got to be realistic about what fans can engage with and accomplish and do to make things a little bit better in their situation, and what fans have literally no control over
0: whatsoever. Yeah. So, I mean, when you focus on, focusing that on a look at City, Harry, um, how, how how should we be as fans? Is it OK to turn a blind eye, as Howard says? Should we carry on as normal and, and kind of accept that there will be criticism?
3: Well, I mean, it's uh, the relationship that you're placed in as a football fan uh, to your club and to the club's owners is a little bit different than... To use a, to use an analogy, it's different than uh, you know your consumption choices. It's not like um, choosing not to buy a pair of trainers because of the labor conditions of the people who make them. You know, like the, the the moral dilemma or the thing you object to morally is directly connected to the thing you're doing, like buying the trainers or whatever. You know, the problem with the Saudi regime. To go back to Newcastle and the slightly lesser problems with the the Abu Dhabi regime are not directly connected to city or to newcastle and i mean i do sort of hate to make this point in some ways but it is worth underlining that uh the british government has very very close relationships with with both of those states and um you know when people with reference to saudi arabia when people bring up the war in yemen and the horrific humanitarian cost that that entails and that's armed and funded and supplied by the UK and the USA as well, and other Western states. So, um, there was a good article actually in the uh, Guardian last week by David Goldblatt, sort of saying it's kind of strange in a way to ask football fans to be better than the British government and the British state has been for decades with reference to uh, with reference to uh, you know human rights abusing states uh, in in that part of the world. With reference how we should be as city fans. I mean. It's a, it, to, to me, I accept everybody feels different. Uh, to me, it's um, it's an uncomfortable position that I don't really like being in. Um, obviously, I am still a City fan, clearly, and uh, um, very enthusiastic about watching the games, etc. I feel very good. I don't go to the games anymore in person because I don't live in, in Britain, but when I was living in Manchester, I was. Um, but I do think that... We should be more critical as a whole uh, of 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 the the owners. I feel like some people do take it upon themselves to defend them every turn, or to find um, to find excuses for them. So to talk about, let's say for example, the property development that they do in Manchester. I mean, they they do that to make money, like other people who develop property in Manchester, and it's a good investment for them. And obviously, fair enough. You know, uh, lots of people invest in Manchester property. There's nothing wrong with that, but. It doesn't make them heroes um similarly you sometimes get people sort of say oh well you know human rights are a just eurocentric uh, imposition um of our values elsewhere so i know that in my opinion certainly universal goods and universal rights that everybody should have and the excuse making is the thing that i find frustrating sometimes yeah. although I, I accept we're all in a difficult position in some ways yeah,
0: Dom. Just finally, as well. I mean, you've written on this topic. As anyone who's ever read anything that I've written on this topic will know, I, I wrestled with my thoughts on this constantly. But ultimately, it doesn't stop me supporting City and you know having this as part of my job and making two podcasts about the club. It is possible, isn't it, to find that middle ground?
4: Yeah, I mean, obviously, as someone who's in the middle ground, I'd say that I'm. I'm it's very sound easy. Like yeah, <laughs> a, sound, sound like a bit a big centrist daddy, but um, yeah, it's um, one thing on the city takeover. Um, is one often forgotten fact in the City takeover is that came a year after another takeover. The taxin Chinoatra one that was absolutely mad. And, and I genuinely remember feeling probably as conflicted about my supporting of City, Well, yeah, that, that season on the taxing with like what he was accused of, you know, this is a man who was on the run, who was named by Anthony International as being responsible for like disappearing 2,000 drug dealers, I believe, or people purportedly re- relate to the drug trade so that then when when you were bought by a sort of a fairly in relative terms modern this this was just my thought process at the time and this is probably completely warped by the fact that you love the football club but this is what i went through at the time your people make these jump through these hoops after the whole taxing thing which i did find pff, grim having said that the first half of that season with sven with alano and petrov and beating united twice i had a great time but there were so see that's it. You can think two different things at the same time. It's like what doesn't help is when people will criticize Newcastle fans now going, look at them all outside the stadium. It's like and this goes beyond football. We're all capable of having more than one thought in our heads here. So when when people who are concerned about the human rights aspect demonize Newcastle fans, that's not helpful because you want to try and keep people onside. You've got to be that's why I say it's important to be realistic about what fans can and can't engage with effectively here, but yeah. So the taxing thing I thought was was awful. Then when the Abu Dhabi United Group, again a sovereign wealth fund of Abu Dhabi, um, buys City, you were sort of thinking, well, they're a more modern, they're they're a Middle Eastern state who are one of the more modernising ones in relative terms. Hey, they're not as bad as Saudi Arabia. This guy's not accused of doing anything as bad as what taxing's been, you know, sorry, this guy's government is, is accused of been doing anything as bad as what taxing's done. So you go, oh, actually, it's not so bad that. And I appreciate now there is, you know, unbelievable levels of naivety to that viewpoint, but also it's because you're relating it to your football club. I, I think you and me have um, spoken previously, David, about um, when the Super League happened. And then city played aston villa away that day and i was thinking i don't know what i'm going to think here but phil foden scored and i jumped out of my seat because you can't just turn those feelings off and i think any critique of how fans engage with an owner has to pay heed to the fact that those bonds with their club as stupid as this sounds are like bonds with their closest friends and family they are bound up as i think howard mentioned in his piece They're bound up in years and years of memory and experience and romance. And you can't just go, oh, your owners are wrong, and you've got to stop that now. If it were that simple, great, but it just isn't. And people are going to have to engage with that now for the next, you know, however many years those owners are there. And if new owners come in, you make those choices with new owners. And so it goes on. And, yeah, I know that was really waffly and rambly, but I think that may be that maybe shows how confused the whole situation can be and it's this is 21st century football and
3: for better or worse um often sometimes look worse you know here we all are so what what has just said really touches on some of that I wanted to add which is that the ship has sailed on a football club ownership in England and it sailed a long time ago um there isn't realistically speaking there isn't going to be a different model so this is where we are and we all have to uh, get used to it or i would guess in theory, you could stop supporting football or support a different team, but that's not really an option for most of us. The other thing I would add that that I find really frustrating about this whole discussion is that um, it just reveals the sort of poor quality of media when it comes to football in general. It's very much structured around um, people tend to have expectations that their club is going to get, you know, the right amount of praise and the right amount of credit for exactly how well they played last week or um you know whether they deserved x y or z result that they did or didn't get and people are not really um ready to have these um conversations and the football media isn't equipped to have them and the non-football media let's say isn't isn't having them either so we're, we're sort of stuck in a position where every discussion about this issue gets filtered through the prism of um you know football hashtag banter And, you know, the antagonism that exists in the media and especially on social media. And it's not an environment where you're going to actually, A, change anyone's minds and B, really inform anybody. So it doesn't really go anywhere.
0: Yeah, and then you have to leave it to morons like me to make podcasts about it, so uh, like, <laughs> I'm just a dread to think what that says to everybody else, but there we are. Uh, right, so that's the end of this week's Blooming Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show then please go and give it a rating and a review in all the usual places. If you'd like to support the show further, you can sign up to become a Patreon backer. If you do, it's just £2 a month, and for that you'll get extra podcasts every Monday, which means you'll get four or five of them for your £2, depending on the number of Mondays in the month. And you'll also get your Friday episodes completely ad-free as well all the details are on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast so go and check that out special thanks to my guest this week harry
3: stopes thanks david
0: and don farrell thank you
3: mate
0: i'll be back next week to review what's happened against burnley and bruges and to preview the game with brighton see you then